0: Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Really? Support the show by going to McClanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com or the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. You can also click on the shop tab, get my logo, and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I do like to hear what you want to hear. And this is a listener-generated episode today. Not in a way that somebody sent me an email, but they tagged me on Twitter about this. And the tweet's gone. But I did read the tweet before it disappeared for some reason. But um, this has to do with a PBS program, the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And... I found this fascinating. First of all, the guest they had was Lindsey Travinsky, who I've talked about on this show a couple of times already. And I, you know, going back to that, I think that they, you know, she, she's a darling right now of the progressive left and of establishment historians. She's very good at media, at least they think she's very good at media. Um, she does a lot of lecturing. She's out about in D.C. and Virginia. So she's in the in crowd right now, kind of like, you know, Kevin Cruz was in the in-crowd until he's a plagiarist, supposedly, and then he's not in an in-crowd anymore. But she's in the in-crowd right now. So um, she likes, they, they have her on PBS, they have her on news programs, leftist news programs, because she's one of them. If you go look at her social media feed, it is full of the most nonsense leftist dribble you can get. It's pretty bad. Uh, but I want to talk about this this particular episode. It was It aired on, I guess, July 5th. And uh, she was a guest on the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And if you don't know about this program, and uh, why would you? Because it's pretty boring. But it's, uh, it's hosted by Clay Jenkinson, who is famous for being Thomas Jefferson. right? He, he appears as uh, he plays Thomas Jefferson. He's on the lecture circuit as Thomas Jefferson. He has a very mid... This is the funniest thing about it. Clay Jenkinson has a very Midwestern accent he wouldn't have sounded anything like Jefferson. Jefferson supposedly had a very soft, high-pitched voice. Clay Jenkinson has a very deep, baritone voice with a Midwestern accent. So he doesn't sound anything like Jefferson. Not in any way would he sound like Jefferson. He's also a leftist. Um, and uh, so, you know, take take it for what it's worth there. Now, you could say, I mean, Kevin Goodsman has made the case that, of course... Uh, Jefferson was a leftist in Virginia, but that's as far as it went. So they did a program on July 5th. Uh, Trevinsky was the guest on this NPR program. Now, this is your tax dollars at work because this is NPR, right? So NPR pays for this. They pay for the production of this. They pay for everything. They probably pay uh, uh, Jenkinson a little bit of money to do this. I don't know. Uh, I know they, they don't pay their guests, but they probably pay Jenkinson a little bit of money. And so um, this is tax-funded for people to get on and talk about their political opinions, right? I mean, it's not, it's not about history. See, my, my program is not tax funded, taxpayer-funded, so I can talk about whatever I want. But NPR, if you want to be real about it, should be completely nonpartisan. But it's not. And, of course, they do it under the guise of history. This is all about history. So I thought I would go through, and I listened to the whole thing. It's about an hour long and I laugh through a lot of it because it's really bad. Um, But I thought I would go through and point out a couple of things that were just remarkable to me. That you have a person, Clay Jenkinson, who is doing a history podcast, quote-unquote, and then an historian, quote-unquote, who comes on and says the most nonsensical things ever. So let me start with the first part of this. And and I I I want to say this because I've already talked about the Dobbs decision and the New York uh, pistol and rifle decision, and I've already I've already addressed these things. And they even they even concede some parts of this. Well, you know the uh, the the people that are for these decisions are saying, and it only applies to these states. But we have to wake up. This could just be destructive everywhere. And they they spread they they say things that completely aren't true about some of the issues when it comes to you know red states that. Um, now our, our pro-life states, well, well there, are, there are things in place. Uh, you know, for example, Cherubinsky talks about entopic uh, pre- pregnancies. But where those things are protected, um, if there's a health of the mother, the life of the mother, well, then a termination is, is certainly considered at that point. Um, so, ectopic pregnancy. So, I mean, this some of the things that she talks about are completely ridiculous. She doesn't even know what she's talking about half the time, which is part of the problem. But again, she passes herself off as this very learned historian who comes out. So I'm going to point out some of the historical errors in both of these people, both Jenkinson and Stravinsky, and then we'll go from there. So first and foremost, they get into a discussion of the Supreme Court decisions, and Jenkinson starts by saying that the title of this episode is The the opposite of apathy. And there was a listener that wrote a letter. Why would you even listen to this thing unless you were forced to is beyond me or because it's podcast fodder. And why you would take the time to write a letter to it is another whole thing. But a a listener wrote a letter in and they were very upset about the the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court is doing. And they're sitting under their 13-star flag on July 4th and they can't fathom what's happening to America today. They're very upset. And, and, of course, another listener uh, writes in and says, I, I don't like the negative side of your, of your past episode. And so Chervinsky says, well, we love America. It's not apathetic. We're not apathetic to America. We love America so much we're going to criticize it. Now, of course, okay, you, can, you can see that point, right? I mean, you love where you live, and so when it's not going in the right direction, you want to criticize it. But you see, this is a guy that supposedly is Thomas Jefferson, and uh, he made a statement during the program, which I found fascinating. I'll get to it in a minute. But when Travinsky said something, you see, because Travinsky's all over the place. Uh, but this is a guy that's Thomas Jefferson. And he's supposed to represent Thomas Jefferson on the lecture circuit, right? That's that's the idea. So after they got into this thing about the Dobbs decision, the guy said, I'm going to read the Federalist essays. And and Jenkinson says, well, that's a, that's a tough read. You got to go through it. But let me say some things about federalism I know that they, we have Jefferson and we have he was interested in uh, a a a uh, a republic where the states were sovereign more of a confederation than a national government then you've Hamilton who was interested in more of a national government with, with some state powers but let me tell you something about what's happening here and I'm par- I, I mean look I'm paraphrasing this and I and I did write some of this down a little more word for word so let me let me read that He says, what troubles me is the use of the Tenth Amendment uh, to try to, uh, uh, he says, uh, turn back the progress of humanity. The use of the Tenth Amendment to try to turn back the progress of humanity. He says, it's an attempt to pull back the last 40 years and undo the civil rights of the last 40 years. That's what the Tenth Amendment is. He actually says... This was a fundamental misuse of the Tenth Amendment. So what happened recently with the Supreme Court, in Jenkinson's mind, is a fundamental misuse of the Tenth Amendment. Now, I found that statement fascinating. Because essentially what he's saying is he doesn't understand the Tenth Amendment at all. The Tenth Amendment was designed to say these are the only powers, and he says it. Now, he, he, later he's asked, well, can you describe the Tenth Amendment? So he does. So he he says, correctly summarizes what the Tenth Amendment was designed to do, but then says what the Supreme Court is doing is a fundamental, mis, fundamental misuse of the Tenth Amendment. Because we don't want to go back to the days of Ozzy and Harriet. This is the kind of stuff that he says. The Tenth Amendment was designed to ensure that only the powers granted to the general government in the Constitution were what the general government could do. Now, if you think about what's happened with the Supreme Court, there's there's nothing in the Dobbs decision that actually invalidated a federal law. Because there's no federal law on this. So essentially all the Supreme Court did was say, this isn't really under the purview of the federal government, it's going back to the states where it belongs. So Clay Jenkinson is upset that the Supreme Court said, not through the Tenth Amendment, but because of misuse of the 14th Amendment, and, and, and Trubinsky gets into that later, but a misuse of the 14th Amendment, there's no federal right to any of this stuff. In other words, the states are where this stuff should happen anyways. And so all the Supreme Court did was just say, we're going to abide by uh, the, the fact that there's no federal law here. This is a creation. This is policy made by the Supreme Court And the Supreme Court shouldn't do that. That's all that happened there. Now, you could say in the New York decision, I would actually agree with Jenkinson and Trubinsky. The New York decision was a bad decision by the Supreme Court. I disagree with them. Well, I'll say this. I actually also agree with them in some ways on the issue with the football coach. It was not a First Amendment issue there. They would say it is, so I sort of agree with him. and sort of the They say this is a First Amendment issue, but it's really not. It's a state issue. Now, Jenkinson and his wife, who is a great lawyer, said this is a this is really a separation of church and state, even though, of course, that's not in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. That's something, and he uh, Jenkinson admits it. This is a letter, and so yeah, the letter is just a letter. It really had no legal bearing or anything. So the Supreme Court created this out of thin air, and then they are going to go on and criticize the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court created all these things they're upset about, deeply troubled about. They said this, this is troubling, this is troubling, over and over. This is, this is uh, you know, progressive historian speak for, I don't know how to figure this out because it goes against my policy directives and my policy wishes. Because the Constitution doesn't work the way I want it to. That's troubling. It's troubling to me. It's troubling. So, uh, he, he says this is a fundamental misuse of the 10th Amendment. The 10th Amendment is designed. It's, it's actually the proper use of the 10th Amendment. The 10th Amendment says you, the general government doesn't have any powers over these things. If it's not here, it doesn't have any power over that. It can't do anything there. So, that's a proper use of the 10th Amendment to say this is a state issue. It's not a misuse of the 10th Amendment. It's the proper use of it. Now, if you want to have some kind of amendment that would say that these things are covered... That the Supreme, uh, the, I'm sorry, that the Congress can do these things. Though, then it wouldn't be a, it would be an improper use of the Tenth Amendment to say this goes back to the states. But the Tenth Amendment was there because the ratifiers were worried about the fact. And, and Jenkinson calls it an anti-Federalist amendment. It wasn't. It was a real Federalist amendment. It was to, designed to ensure that the central authority would not abuse its powers. It's not an anti-Federalist amendment. It's a Federalist amendment. It's an anti-national amendment, is what it is. It's to ensure there's no nationalization of the general government. That was the whole point. So, when, when you look at what Jenkinson says, it's just completely laughable. This is a laughable statement. It's a misuse of the Tenth Amendment. But again, this is what NPR is funding and promoting as public radio. Somebody who would say something like that. But... Uh, Then they get into... Travinsky actually gets off on a a point where she starts railing against the Supreme Court. And she said... This is the left has rediscovered the problems with the Supreme Court when it doesn't act as a policy arm for their agenda. Okay, This is funny to me. And so I I agree with her. The Supreme Court was never designed to do a lot of this stuff. Judicial review was something that uh, the court assumed for itself. Now, both Jenkinson and Travinsky say it was John Marshall. It wasn't. In fact... The first time the Supreme Court assumed this for itself was in the Hilton v. United States case with Alexander Hamilton arguing in favor of the United States for a tax. That was the first time that the court actually upheld one of Hamilton's programs, his tax. His carriage tax, essentially, is what they upheld. That was where Judicial Review was born. It's just that in 1803, Marshall invalidates a federal law. Now, again invalidates a federal law. Now, let me go back to a little bit of an understanding, original understanding here. During the ratification process, this was brought up, and Patrick Henry himself would stand up and say that I certainly hope that the federal courts will invalidate unconstitutional laws. He hoped that would happen. If the law is unconstitutional, well, the federal court should invalidate an unconstitutional federal law. But the whole catch was the states you see because we still had a federal republic even Hamilton recognized that we still had a federal republic that wasn't going away once the Constitution was ratified we didn't have a national government in fact they made very careful very carefully said we don't have a national government we're not getting a national government that's not what the Constitution does because if anyone thought it was that it never would have been ratified to begin with James Wilson of Pennsylvania Tench Cox of Pennsylvania. These are people that were very careful to point out we don't have a national government. You know, Hamilton, right? All of the proponents of the document were careful not to call it a national government when they were pressed because they knew that if they really pushed that agenda, it would fail. Those in Massachusetts, those in Virginia, those in New York... Hamilton in New York in Poughkeepsie makes several speeches in favor of a federal republic. He's called out on it. John Lansing says, I think you're lying because it's not what you really want. And, of course, Hamilton. No, 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 no. I really do believe it. So there you go. Pennsylvania. James Wilson makes several speeches in favor of a federal republic. His State House yard speech is in favor of a federal republic. The central power, central powers are so limited, they're really not noticeable. The states have everything else. In Virginia, you have the entire pro-Constitution delegation making this very argument. In Massachusetts, the exact same thing. They're all doing it. right? They're all doing it. It doesn't matter. Take your pick. It could be Connecticut, too. It could be any of the states that even had a semblance of an opposition. This is what they had to promise, or the Constitution would not have been ratified. So, you had contentious uh, uh at least in Connecticut well the the opposition was essentially beaten up and run out. I mean they couldn't publish their their opposition you know, they, um, this was a real difficult situation but you had pretty good opposition in Connecticut also in Massachusetts, in Pennsylvania, in New York in Virginia. you had you had good oppositions uh, good opposition to the uh, general government in those states. not as much in of course in North Carolina, Rhode Island. Not as much in South Carolina or Georgia or Delaware or Maryland. Not as much. Uh, New Jersey, not as much. Uh, but certainly you had it in all these other states. Okay, So enough to block the Constitution. So they said that, um, which I thought was historically inaccurate. But again, these people are, are historians. They know these things. Of course, I guess they don't know that. Um, so you know that's that's a quibble but i mean it's an important quibble because if you're going to pass yourself off as being some type of expert on early american history and the powers of the court well then you need to understand that judicial review was not invented in 1803 and that john marshall himself stood up in the virginia ratifying convention and essentially said that uh, he would support judicial review, but he would uh, of federal law, but not state law. And that was the important caveat. You had to have that because this is where people were worried. John Rutledge of South Carolina said, and I've said this on this podcast before, if there's any state, there's any federal negative of a state law, that alone ought to damn the Constitution. That was explicitly rejected in Philadelphia. What do you think? The Dobbs decision says, "Well, this all goes back to the states. We're not allowing the central government to invalidate a state law under the premise of what? There's nothing in the Constitution that lets the, that's, that says you can. This is substantive due process. This is what you're doing. They, they, Stravinsky will complain about uh, the Dred Scott decision. Well, what do you think that? What do you think Roe v. Wade essentially was? It's the same thing, right? It's substantive due process. This is what we're doing." With the entire incorporation of the Fourteenth Amendment, essentially, so it's, these people are so inconsistent and so stupid they don't even get they don't get it, right? That's the problem. Uh, now, um, what's funny is when she rails against the court, she says, "Well, the the the, uh, the states don't have to abide by. It. There, there's no police for the Supreme Court. There's no enforcement mechanism for Supreme Court decisions." She's exactly right about it. Something Thomas Jefferson pointed out. This is just a. Uh, an opinion of this of john marshall it doesn't doesn't have any effect if we don't enforce it well she says but this of course led to that that very thing led to the civil war i don't know where she was going with that if she's saying well the north and their resistance to a to enforcing a supreme court decision led to the civil war or that the south was responsible i haven't figured i, I couldn't i couldn't gain that from her statement on that but Um, Of course, if she was implying that the North in ignoring a Supreme Court decision was a pretty important uh, uh, thing for Southerners, it was. I mean, they looked at Dred Scott as settling the issue that the North could not block slavery in the territories, that personal liberty laws were unconstitutional. Because they were violating the—I mean—they they were violating the, the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution, or fugitive clause. It didn't say slave in it, but fugitive slave clause of the Constitution. They were concerned about this because the North wasn't abiding by the compact. Then certainly you can say that northern efforts of nullification. The South actually pointed this out. They said those efforts of nullification are unconstitutional. It's different when you nullify something that's not in the Constitution, rather than nullifying something that is in the Constitution. Was their point, and there is a point to be made about that. You have to be careful with this right so there's different i mean you can't nullify something that's in the constitution now you could make a case that southerners were stretching this a little bit with, with the tariff it does the general government is allowed to collect a tariff it doesn't say how doesn't say how much doesn't say any of that right their argument was that it violates the general welfare clause because it doesn't benefit and burden all equally in the union that was that was calhoun's argument essentially but this is where they were going with it. But I mean, again, the general government can collect a tariff. So uh, is Southern insistence on nullifying and, you know, in opposition to the tariff, even constitutional either. I mean, there is a, there is a case to be made there. So um, you, this is why uh, George Mason wanted to explicit that navigation laws would be illegal because he knew what the North was going to do. Navigation laws are protective tariffs. He knew the North was going to do. He wanted to make that explicit. So, um, I find it fascinating because Jenkinson says, well, it sounds a lot like you're favoring the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. Oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm... But see, her whole point, and as the person on Twitter pointed out, it's the Supreme Court is wrong because uh, it has too much power because it's giving power back to the states. That's essentially her point here. Now, again, I would agree with them. The Supreme Court was supposed to be the, the least important branch of the general government, by far, Congress is supposed to be the most important part. I've talked about it on this podcast before. Supreme Court should never have had this much power. Well, all the Supreme Court is doing is saying we don't have this much power. So what are they worried about? The Supreme Court is saying we don't have this much power. We're returning this back to the states in that decision. I've criticized them for the New York pistol and rifle decision, which I think is an abuse of the 14th Amendment it's 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 going against the entire intent of the 14th amendment it was never intended to incorporate the bill of rights into the state constitutions or it nothing that was never the intent of the 14th amendment so and that way i would actually agree with them on that decision and in the situation with uh, the coach who prayed at football games afterwards i would say this is entirely incorrect too that was a state issue it's not a federal issue this is a state issue now Her caveat, well, again, these people are taking federal money. These these schools are taking federal money. Well, the Department of Education is unconstitutional, by the way. Um, So they shouldn't be taking federal money. This, again, is a state issue. And I would say that in in all these cases, if the states want to prohibit people from doing things, they can. We know that that states in New England had had, uh, state-established churches. We know that states could have religious tests in fact in Massachusetts this is really amazing if you go back and read the ratification debates in Massachusetts one of the main complaints was that there would not be a religious test for the general government and they wanted that like they had in Massachusetts right so the states were completely free to do whatever they wanted here Jefferson may not have liked it in Connecticut But he had it in Virginia. But see, this is Virginia and Connecticut, two different things. And he wasn't going to use the general government to enforce it in Connecticut, and what he wanted in Virginia. That's the whole key. So I found that to be uh, a really interesting part of the discussion because Travinsky and Jenkinson both get so much wrong in that. And the other thing that then they get off onto, of course, uh, gun control and other things. And Travinsky kept calling... Uh, she kept saying, "We don't need automatic weapons. We don't need automatic weapons." She doesn't even know what she's talking about. She says, "If you have an automatic weapon, you should need a, a, a background. You should need all these different kind of uh, license for that. You should need a license and some type of background." What well, you do for automatic weapons? That's already in place. She doesn't really understand the difference between semi-automatic weapons and automatic weapons. Automatic weapons are very hard to get. You have to have all kinds of permits and licenses for that. It's a, it's a class four weapon. You got. You've got to have. A, a thorough background check and you've got to have all kinds of things in place just to just to have an automatic fully automatic weapon. Now a, a semi-automatic weapon, would that mean you can't have a semi-automatic shotgun? I actually had and an I talked about the military yesterday, but I, I've lived in a military community. I had a neighbor across the street from me for years, and his favorite weapon to carry when he was when he was deployed was a semi-automatic shotgun. He said it was the best thing I ever had. Uh, because it was extremely deadly. If you have a semi-automatic shotgun with eight shots in it, you can do a lot of damage with that in a very short amount of time uh, to a lot of people. And so when uh, Travinsky said, well, these these firearms are designed to do a lot of damage, bloody damage, as quickly as possible. In fact, uh, really, they're designed to... Um, yeah, a lot of damage quickly as possible, but not, not bloody, as she's talking about. It's going to be, as you kill someone, of course, it's going to be horrible, but... Um, she, she really doesn't understand the nature of you know these, these weapons or what they do, or automatic, semi-automatic. So you get people that start to talk about these things. And, well, the Founding Fathers, the most technological thing they had was a musket. They didn't understand this stuff. Well, they did understand massive casualties on a the battlefield. They had cannons. They had cannons. And if you don't know about a cannon, you can put all kinds of things in a cannon. It's a great big shotgun. You can fill it full of nails and put powder in it, and as your infantry comes up, you fire it out, and you kill a lot of people really quickly. Uh, So, yeah, they did, and you know what? A person could own a cannon. They could have a cannon, they could have it at their house, they could shoot it anytime they wanted. It was perfectly legal to own a cannon. In fact, even in the 1860s, it was perfectly legal to own your own uh, ironclad, right? I mean, uh, the Confederacy, now I know this is in the South, but uh, they still had the same tradition. The Confederacy, private individuals were building ironclads. You could, if you're a private individual in the in the uh, 18th century, you could build a, a, a ship and you could put cannons on it and you could sail it around. You could get a letter of mark. and you could sail around as a private individual, a privateer. You're a pirate and you could you could kill people, right? So I mean, they had cannons. They understood weapons of mass destruction. They had these things. Uh, it wasn't like that was something alien to them. Now they did have different rules of warfare and I think the real issue here is not the weapon, it's the the way that people have changed in their impression of what you should and should not do to other people and when you should and should not do these things to other people. We become uh, we become desensitized to some of these things. Though so I would suggest that even in the 18th century America could be a, a very, very violent place. We've in some ways, I think it was more violent in the 18th century than it is today. Uh, violence was, was much more accepted than it is today, which is why these things are so, so shocking now when, when, when stuff like this happens, because uh, we don't think that we should have uh, be subject to violence. But think about people on the frontier. They're subject to violence all the time, all the time. I mean, it was a daily fear that you would be subject to violence in one way or another. Um, so violence was a was a reality of life in the 18th century for a lot of Americans in the 19th century for a lot of Americans, particularly those on the frontier. It was a very violent place, and uh, even in in your cities and other places, I mean, violence was something that could happen and happened quite a bit. So I found that to be funny. Um, she also talks about, you know, uh, later in the podcast, they get into the right to marriage. And Jenkinson brings up, well, we have the Ninth Amendment, which has all these other things. And then Travinsky says, yeah, and then the 14th Amendment. We, we can say that, you know, there's these rights. Well, there's no right to this. There's no, well, we think there's rights like there's a right to marry in the Constitution. I want to know where, right? Well, that's the 14th Amendment. She says the 14th Amendment was designed uh, because slaves, this is part of it, slaves couldn't get married. Now, I've read all the debates surrounding the 14th Amendment, and I don't remember that being brought up at all. In fact, the real issue for people that were, the Republicans were proposing the amendment was the ability to hold property and sue in court. This is what, it was on the heels of the failed Civil Rights Acts of the Reconstruction period. They wanted to make sure that those Civil Rights Acts, which were declared unconstitutional, would be part of the federal apparatus, so that former slaves, freedmen, could sue in court and own property. Now, are they saying that women are property? But, I mean, this is where they, they go so far beyond um, what what the original intent was here the 14th Amendment. It's laughable. Uh, Trevinsky also brought up something funny about the court. She said, well, you know, uh, there could be pressure put on the court. You know, when Franklin Roosevelt didn't like what the court was doing. In other words... When the court was actually acting responsibly and knocking down all the unconstitutional, potentially unconstitutional legislation of the New Deal or potentially knocking it down, and they did some of it, um, well, we're just going to pack the court. Well, this scared the court. So what she's actually advocating there is... Uh, a breakdown of the separation of powers. The, the the court doesn't have independence. It's at the it's at the pleasure of the president. And if he doesn't get his will or his way, he's going to pack the court and put his own people on there to make it a policy arm. The left, every now and then, even though they're so... or We're really troubled by the court right now. We're living in a court. The court just doesn't... The court, the court, the court, the court, right? The court is just not doing what... What, and the we, judicial we, review isn't part of the process. We can't do these things. What they really are admitting is that when the court doesn't act as a policy arm, they don't like it, or it does act as a policy arm, but not in the way they like. They want to change it. But when it acts as a policy arm for what they like, well, the court is fine. You didn't hear them talking much about the court before the uh, quote-unquote conservatives controlled the court. This is the funny thing about all this. And and why I find uh, you know people like Travinsky and... And Jenkinson and others so uh, just laughable because they are so inconsistent. So inconsistent. And the, look, conservatives are guilty of this a lot of times too. The, the New York pistol and rifle decision is very inconsistent with originalism. Uh, and the 14th Amendment, any, anytime you support the 14th Amendment, you're going beyond what and, and you're saying you want incorporation, you're destroying original intent. So I find all this interesting. Of course, the Thomas Jefferson Hour, again, is paid for by your taxpayer dollars. So um, when you go out and listen to this left-wing dribble, just remember that, right? Every time you support me, uh, you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart or people like Tom Woods or others who have podcasts. When you support them, you buy their program products or, um, you know, you get their ads don't skip through the ads. I know that I give you a lot of stuff at the beginning of this podcast that's ad related. I do it because that's how I keep this podcast free of charge and gives me time to do these things, right? So um, please support the, the ads or listen to the ads or do this. I mean, buy McLanehan Academy. You know, Go out and do these things because that's how you keep this. I don't have NPR backing me for this podcast and um, it's just all on your generous contributions. So please consider that when you listen to the show. All right. Again, listener-generated episode. Asked me to comment on it. I thought it was hilarious, so I did. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.